It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday in Southern California. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton in our studios in San Diego, along with my co-host John Riley, broadcasting from left field. We will be here for the next hour or so to talk about the world of sports. Got a ton of topics on the table. We're going to go a lot of different directions in the show. John, good afternoon. Before we start, we're looking for a co-host to sit here next to us. Who wants to be part of the so-called fans forum explain to everybody on our live stream broadcast how that works how they get involved yeah so you can get involved in the fans forum if you've got a hot take a question for hacksaw just type it into the live chat on facebook or on youtube because you know we're live streaming actually a facebook youtube twitter but Type it into Facebook or YouTube. We'll see it. We'll get you involved in our in our fans forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. Okay, we've got a lot of topics on the table. A reminder, if you like sports, if you like the way I used to do sports talk radio, you will like my website. Check it out. It's all written. It's there every day. Best 15 minutes in radio. Hacksaw's headlines, one man's opinion column, Hacksaw's mini polls. If you like sports, you need to check it out. And by the way, if you like what we're doing, John says, give us a thumbs up. And if you like what we're doing, I say, give us a five star rating because we could use the support. John, let's get started. Let's talk baseball. Yeah, baseball. I mean, the Padres are just driving me crazy. I mean, just, they, they they lose. They just start winning again, and then they lose again. I mean, I, when it, are we going to get any momentum here? I don't know. They're headed into New York. They play the Yankees in a weekend series. Uh, the Padres just have shown no consistency. You know, you look at the statistics. Left hand says $253 million payroll, fab four on the roster, loaded veteran pitchers who starred last year. And then you see them ranked 25th hitting the ball, absolutely dead last with runners in scoring position. The inability to score runs, been shut out six times this season. I think they've had 12 games already that they've had two runs or less. And how about this stat? Going into this game in Washington, in their last three outings, they were one for 31. One for 31 with guys in scoring position. <laughs> they just don't hit. Am I pushing a panic button? No, not yet. Still a lot of baseball to be played. But I caution you, as we go to Memorial Day weekend, pal, they're eight back right now. If this thing gets to 10 or 12 or 15 behind, I don't think they can make that up in the second half of the season. These guys have got to start to hit. And, of course, Hasan Kim went down with what looked like a really scary knee injury mm, yeah. when he got nailed by a foul ball in the Washington game on Thursday. So Padres are just not a complete team right now. Uh, I'm going to ask some questions, and I'll let you from left field, rooting with your heart, but you should be doing okay. this podcast with your head. <clears throat> they have a black hole at behind home plate. Yes. Blackest of holes. Can't hit, can't throw guys out on the bases. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this last night, and I, I decided to go back and took a little research. Since A.J. Preller took over as general manager, they've moved an awful lot of players. He may lead the major leagues. He may be in first place in the major leagues in trades. Oh, yeah. And player deals. Guys going everywhere. <laughs> I swear to you, John, if you look at box scores every night, you'll see Padre guys all over the major leagues. And some of them are having pretty good seasons. While this team is 
almost in last place, which is really hard to believe with a $253 million payroll. The Padres have had these guys as catchers. Austin Hedges, former first-round draft pick, really good glove guy, hot and cold as a hitter. They moved him to Cleveland. Luis Torrens, do you remember him? They traded for him, and they thought, this guy's going to be the future. Guy was in Seattle, then he went to Baltimore. He's been all over the parking lot. He didn't pan out. They rented Derek Norris, who came from the A's. Feisty guy behind home plate, could hit a little bit, hit with some power, but he was here today, gone tomorrow, lasted, I don't know, two-thirds of a season. You do remember the trade that was going to solve all the problems behind home plate when they traded Cal Quantrill and others and got Francisco Mejia. <laughs> Last I heard, he's hitting home runs down in Tampa Bay. And then Victor Carantini. Refugee, Cubs, hit with a little bit of power. Everybody seemed to like him. He's in Milwaukee, hitting with a little power, catching a lot for the Brewers. So I asked the question. The Padres ran through all these guys, and they lose Luis Campusano with the thumb surgery. Nowhere's near being able to play. They got, you know, a 4A guy, Brett Sullivan, doing as good as he can, not hitting behind home plate. Nola has completely lost his ability to swing with a stick. Uh They had Pedro Severino, whom they signed from the Orioles. Guy had been in the majors for an extended period of time. Had some success in Milwaukee. Was hitting two eighty six at El Paso. Why would you not bring him up Mm -hmm. when the other guys are zeros behind home plate, either throwing guys out, whatever. Never considered bringing back Jorge Alfaro, who obviously has gone on to other places. Uh, That was a real strange deal for me. The other thing, they're kind of wafer thin in the bullpen with long relief. Julio Teheran opted out finally in El Paso and has just signed in Milwaukee to be one of their starters. Milwaukee's got five starting pitchers on the on the injured list. Why would you not call up Severino, not call up Teheran? I mean, granted, you'd have to make moves to get him onto the 40-man roster. Why would you not do that, especially when Severino is hitting 286 in AAA ball, and he's kind of a vested veteran. So they've moved an awful lot of catchers out of here. I don't know if they should have moved all those guys. And then they had guys who were producing in the minors and haven't brought them up. Your turn. My turn. I mean, th- there's a lot going on here. Well, first of all, Xander Bogart's got a hit with runners in scoring position today. Finally. Yeah, hallelujah. So uh, the Padres, I think last I checked, were winning 5-1. Um but to talk about the catchers, it's an interesting, it's a motley crew that you got there. And when I remember um, Derek Norris reminded me of Gimli, you know, the the dwarf on Lord of the Rings. You know, he was a character and he was good for maybe a year or two. And then he fell off the table. Um, I think these guys, they just get beat up a lot back there. You know, Austin Hedges never had a stick and he would show glimmers of it and then it would go away. Um, Nola, though, I thought we had a catcher that can hit. I mean, when we traded for him, we gave up a lot to get him with the Mariners, and he's come here and he's hitting over 100 points less than what he hit in Seattle with virtually no power. It's really frustrating. But I think if you're A.J. Preller, you figured you had Nola as your starting guy that you were hoping was going to be better, and you had Campusano as the young gun, and both of those guys have kind of blown up for different reasons. And yeah, it would have been nice to have Severino come up. I'm surprised they didn't bring him up. But right now it is a black hole behind the plate. And I think the other thing is, you know, in the big picture, they have the 16-year-old kid still in Peoria, Ethan Salas, the bonus baby. But that's three years away at least. That might be four years away. So, I mean, you can't sit here and sales pitch me. We've got a great young catcher on the way. But that's 
that's way down the road. The only thing that counts is this year. The only thing that counts is this year and next year because if you don't get it done, you're going to have so much age and you have such a commitment to all those guys contractually and you got a lot of age on the pitching staff. This team has to win, has to turn the corner this year, and if not this year, it has to be next year. And they have nothing in the farm system at the upper echelons right now. Well, so. don't you think, though, that if all the other guys were hitting, um, if Cronenworth was hitting 280 or up and Machado was hitting, we wouldn't care that Austin Nola was not doing all that great. I mean, if, if Grisham, I mean, Grisham had a home run today, but he's still below 200 as well. So if everybody's doing their job, you can afford to have a weak hitting, good defensive catcher like Nola. But half their batting order is weak hitting right now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so I'm just... Second-guessing the general manager right now. The general manager's team right now is about a game and a half out of last place. Out of last place with a $253 million payroll. I'm sorry. I'm not beating them up. I'm just presenting the facts as they are. Okay, let's move on. Next topic. Okay, I mean, we've seen some big moves here with the Chargers and our local guy, Matt Ariza. Big news. Uh, the Chargers created a ceasefire with the running back, Austin Eckler. But they paid a price. Austin Eckler, backstory, $6.2 million, final year of his contract, grossly underpaid compared to what other really productive backs are getting. Wanted his contract upgraded, they said no. Not going to give him an extension. Did not give him a bump up. Wanted to be traded, they said no. Asked for permission to talk to other teams, they finally relented, said yes, did not get any offers. Holding out. A wall from all the offseason workouts, although he has missed workouts in the past because he trains on his own. But they finally came up with a deal that gives him a million seven in additional incentives. If he hits the benchmarks, he normally hits rushing the ball, catching passes, all purpose yards, touchdowns. He could earn eight million dollars. Okay. So they're taking care of him. The price, not just one point seven million. They had to agree. They can't franchise tag him at the end of this season. Ah. He becomes a walk-free agent. Now, Mm. maybe he has a great year with Justin Herbert. Maybe they finally arrive, go deep into the playoffs with this explosive offense, and then maybe they come to a conclusion, let's give him another contract extension. But the fact that they had to put in the clause We won't franchise tag you. We can't franchise tag you. You can become a free agent next February 1st. That's a pretty steep price to pay because if he's not there, that's not the same offense. Yeah, I mean, he clearly wants out. I mean, he doesn't want to be with the Chargers. seen a lot of other... Uh, people want to get out of that franchise like like Eli Manning, you know, when his parents got involved. But, you know, our running backs, they decline after the age of 30. So how old is Austin Eckler? I want to say he's 28, 29. Okay, so he's near the edge. But he's never had a substandard season. He's never had significant injuries. Now, grant you, you're one play away from the end of your season with any type of injury, but the guy's been rock solid. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't have 7,700 all-purpose yards in five years. Unless you're great, and this kid is great. So the Chargers have solved this right now, but they're going to have another issue February 1st vis-a-vis free agency, salary cap problems, etc. What are the Chargers if they don't have Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler next season? Yeah, you got to count on that new kid, Quentin Johnston, to be your guy. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of turnover on that roster. On we go, the New York Jets story. He went through a one-day workout on Wednesday with the New York Jets. Matt Ariza is waiting to see if there's going to be a contract offer there. Ariza has pushed really hard 
to separate himself from the sexual incident at San Diego State a couple of Octobers ago. And I think because of the pressure from his lawyers, the prosecutor went public and said the investigation is complete. The testimony we got that Ariza was not part of a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. There was consensual sex earlier in the evening. He was not there when it, the rest of it happened. Then San Diego State, in the face of possible litigation from Ariza, finally released their report that indicated he's cleared of anything as it relates to a sexual assault. Because that happened and they pushed the the rock up the hill so hard, opens the door for him to go back to the NFL. Somebody will sign him, I'm sure. He'll get a chance to go to camp. He'll be a minimum wage free agent. And then we'll see if he can kick his way onto the roster, rebuild his football reputation, which I think he can, and then have to rebuild his personal reputation. But this has been a long slog to get to this point. And the court case is still out there, and the court case is going forward. The lawsuit from the woman against Ariza and the two other players. But that's a civil trial, not a criminal. C- civil trial that happens sometime at the end of April, unless unless Ariza is removed from the lawsuit. The woman reportedly asked for $50,000. She said, absolutely not. I did nothing wrong in this case. Yeah. So uh, the, the whole case kind of stalled because it was a big gray area. And then it was he said, she said. And then there were questions about what she told people, how she acted, how much she had to drink. Was it consensual? And then they could not prove that Ariza took part in any of the activity, quote, inside that house. So he's learned a lot from this. He'll get the opportunity, I think, to play in the NFL this year. And we'll see what happens with the trial because that's a separate entity thing. And all this is going to be revisited again, I think, starting April 24th. I mean, it's good to see that justice was done. Um, you know, he's our local guy. and He wasn't in the room when it all went went down. So he should be free and clear. But let me ask you this, Lee. There are parallels with the Trevor Bauer story, right? Um, And in terms of sexual allegations, did that woman make it up? I mean, what are your opinions? What's the same? What's different in these two cases? Well, I think it's I think it's different because it was Bauer one on one with a woman and the woman's voice is on on cell phones asking for, quote, rough sex. This is a different set of circumstances. There is no picture of any athlete involved with this woman. There are pictures, the videos of this woman. But there's also conflicting testimony of her bragging that she was 18 and went to Grossmont College, not Grossmont High. And and friends of Ariza are the ones that told police he left at 1230. The incident, whatever it was, we think we know what it was, the incident occurred at 130 and he was long gone. So I think the two cases are just uh, just different. Bauer never got charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, they investigated. She supposedly is suing, but there's all kind of stories out there now that maybe that suit's not going to go forward. So Bauer's reclaimed his career abroad in Japan. Arises trying to get back in onto somebody's NFL roster between now and the opening training camp in July. Good. I want to see the punt god in the NFL, my man. On we go. Let's uh, put another topic on the table. Okay. I mean, a lot going on in the NFL. You shared with me this list of all of these rules changes. I mean, my gosh, what's going on? They didn't do enough. The NFL owners just wrapped up their spring meetings in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and they and they took advice from the competition committee, and they went ahead and they voted. 
Uh, the first was this controversial fair catch rule they wanted to impose on kickoffs. Uh, they've changed a lot of the rules on kickoff and punt returns for safety issues because of the significance of injuries. Yeah. Guys going full blow down the field, <laughs> blasting other guys, and the, and the, the points of collision are really violent. They've obviously changed a whole bunch of those rules on what you can do going down the field with the gunners, what you can do with the wedge, which has been outlawed now on blocking assignments. That being said, it hasn't solved it. 49 concussions, John, in the last three years on special teams kicks. So proposal was made. Let's change the kickoff rule. You can kick the football off regardless of where it's fielded. You can call for a fair catch. If you call for the fair catch at the 20, at the 10, or in the end zone, ball comes out to the 25. So hmm. that avoids all the contact and the heavy hitting downfield and the risk of guys getting blasted trying to return kicks. But there were, they didn't want to do it because special teams coaches went public within the last week and said, you're taking a chunk of strategy out of the game. You should not be doing that. Hmm. They didn't agree with the injury story. 49 concussions in three years just on kick returns. That's pretty significant. In fact, there were more injuries on kick returns than there were concussions to quarterbacks, wide receivers, or running backs. Oh, yeah. And consider how many snaps those guys play and the volume of hits they take compared to every you know fourth down somebody catches a ball. Well, those kickoffs are like a head-on collision, two cars, 50 exactly. miles an hour right at each other. Now— there's a contingent out there that are upset that this thing was finally approved with the fair catch rule. The ball come out to the 25. Now they're saying, well, special teams coaches, because it's all a game of field position, John. That's all it is, is infantry movement. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> John, now now there's some special teams coaches that say, screw that. We're going to sky kick it or we're going to kick it line drive or squib kick it along the ground and make you field it. And mm. then we're going to tackle you. And if we get the chance to do that and pin your ass back at the 11-yard line, <laughs> then we were right. So it's going to be interesting to see what the special teams coaches do from a strategy standpoint. But you're correct. These head-on collisions were atrocious in the National Football League. So that's, that's rule one. Uh, the second one was, I guess they call it the 49er rule. You know, San Francisco lost all their quarterbacks. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they were going to call you to ask you if you could come in and play. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've, they've decided uh, that every club will now be allowed to have three quarterbacks on, on active roster game day. Mm-hmm. On game day. Two will play. The third guy, who's normally the developmental squad quarterback, will be available to play if the other two guys go out. And if the third guy comes in, the other two can't come back in. Okay. Uh, if you bench him or if guys get hurt third guy can play. The key is it doesn't count against the Sunday game day roster because coaches they freak out. You know, I got <laughs> 53 players. I'll take somebody off my 53 to put a third quarterback on that might not ever mm-hmm. play. The league said that guy will be standing there. His name will be with an asterisk. You can still suit your 53 to good. go play. That's so a good I, rule. I, I, I really think that's, that's a real positive move. A lot of mixed bag reaction in the Thursday night flex schedule. Uh, a lot of negotiating back and forth. The NFL is trying to protect the Amazon investment for Thursday Night Football because they had ratty ratings last year because they had a bunch of bad games. Now the league has convinced everybody we have the opportunity to flex a game 
at a Sunday involving hot teams and flip it into the Thursday night scenario. There are a lot of complexities because now you've got to change all the hotels and the, the bookings in advance. Mm-hmm. But they, they're going to do it two weeks out. So two weeks from now, hmm, that looks like a bad Thursday night game. Let's put this one here and f- trade them. So that, that's going to happen. The big picture, NFL TV contracts will be coming up. They're doing this to fix Thursday night's matchups to make sure that when they open negotiations with the networks, the Thursday night package has some glitter to it, like uh-huh. Monday night football does, like Sunday night surely has. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's I think, one of the rationales there is not only to help their new partner, Amazon, but the next next bidding thing. Roger Goodell's contract extension goes through 2027. Yeah, a lot of controversy around the league, the league's business, aspects with gambling, aspects with ownership controversies vis-a-vis Daniel Snyder, amongst others, problems with the union, etc. They gave him a contract extension. Why? Because the NFL business is now worth over $16 billion a year. When he came in, I think the network value, the league value, through all their contract sponsorships, uh, was about $8 billion. It's now $16 bill. That's why he got the contract. But there's an interesting sidebar story. Jim Ursay, who's on the financial committee of the NFL negotiated Goodell's latest extension, has indicated the next contract that comes up for a commissioner may be split. Follow me on this. Hmm. I think Roger Goodell will retire after this seven-year extension, or not seven, this four-year extension. I think he'll retire in 2027. They are talking that when it comes time to hire the next commissioner, they will hire a commissioner of NFL football-related activity. Football. They will hire a CEO to run the business of the Mm. NFL. There'll be two commissioners. There'll be a Goodell football guy, and there'll be some guy from Princeton with a business background that will obviously handle the business aspect of the phenomenal growth of the National Football League. So that's that's a really interesting story. The one rule they did not vote on, and you'll have to explain to me to this, there was a proposal out there made by four different teams about personal foul penalties. Give the coaches a replay challenge they can use on a critical personal foul penalty. Was it a flag? Was it a late hit? Was it launching? Was it helmet to helmet? Give those coaches that opportunity to challenge that one time a game. Or there was another proposal. Quarterback hits. Personal fouls. Hit to the head. Intentional or accidental. Give the coach one challenge to use on a quarterback hit. Did my guy get blown up intentionally or did guys get blocked into him and then he got leveled uh, accidentally? League never voted on it. They tabled it, quote, want to study it. A foul is a foul. These guys take so many hits in and around the pocket and the game is so fast and you got guys flying all over the place and guys getting blocked into quarterbacks. That's the one thing I think that probably should have been approved and it's only we're only talking one opportunity, one yeah. additional challenge uh, that has to be used specifically for personal foul or personal foul hit on a quarterback. So I would have approved it. The league shoved it off to the side. So a lot of topics there. Go ahead. Give me your opinion from left field. <laughs> from left field or maybe from the end zone. Um, 
you know, the, the, the Goodell contract is interesting. I like that idea, a, a business guy and a football operations guy. That makes a lot of sense, actually, especially as the NFL is a $16 billion enterprise. But the thing that struck me is you remember in the NFL draft when Goodell walks up there you know, with his first pick. He always gets just a cavalcade of boos. Yeah, but it happens everywhere. They <laughs> yeah. boo the baseball commissioner, uh, the NBA commissioner, the president of the National Hockey League. I'm sorry, that goes with the job description. But the owners have got to love him. I mean, because he's putting money in their pockets. So um, it's just an interesting thing. I mean, you go back and look at all the other previous commissioners. I mean, there were some pretty good guys in that seat. Tagliabue did a really good job. And uh, you don't think so? Uh, do you want to get into a debate right now in a fist fight over the concussion lawsuit? Or? <laughs> okay. Was that another topic for another day? All right. Well, I mean, there's been an interesting history of, but, of but commissioners. No, you are correct. Uh, Tagliabue did a lot of creative things. Prior to that, it was Roselle who mm-hmm. was a visionary from a marketing standpoint. And and obviously, way back in the day, they created the genre of Monday Night Football. And the TV contracts became so critically important to the National Football League. So, I mean, they have built this thing from a money-making standpoint. I mean, it's it's the greatest business in the globe, Major League Baseball. It's equivalent here to what soccer is in Europe. You go to the English Premier League and the amount of money they generate mm-hmm. and what the World Cup generates through FIFA, corrupt as they are, it's, it's phenomenal. So NFL, the NFL formula has worked and worked and worked at the cost of the health of the players, I might add. Well, isn't it interesting, the stack ranking of the sports? Because usually the big three sports in America, when I was a kid, it was baseball one, football two, baseball one by a long shot, football a distant second, and then basketball. And that's when basketball had their championships on tape delay. Mm-hmm. And now the whole thing's been flipped around. I mean, you know, the NFL's clearly won. Baseball and basketball seem to jockey back and forth. But they've risen in terms of the growth. Oh, yeah, all three of them have risen. Yeah. Uh, add the fourth one. National Hockey League under Gary Bettman is now equal to what the NBA is in terms of total revenue. That's incredible. Different, different marketplaces. Mm-hmm. It's no longer Canada's game. Don Cherry from Hockey Night in Canada had apoplexy when two American teams were in the finals of the Stanley <laughs> Cup. He couldn't believe it. But but the NHL has become a global game with all the players coming from Europe. And now we're seeing that happen in pro basketball with the advent of the great players that have come from abroad. You know, whether it's it's the Pacific Rim or Europe and, you know, Lithuania and all those places, uh, each each of the professional sports has really gone up in terms of gross revenues. But they're all here. Baseball has really recovered. And the NFL is up here. Uh, personal fouls on quarterbacks. Should, shouldn't they do this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I, I like replay in all the sports because I just want them to get it right. And, you know, does it interrupt the rhythm and flow of the game? It does a little bit. But with football, you know, you're, you're going to the fridge to get a beer in between, you know, plays anyways or going to the restroom. So it, it seems like that would fit more in football than it would in basketball or baseball. So I say... Get the uh, Give them a replay. Get it right. Only one challenge here. Only asking one additional challenge. I don't think the, the replay on every personal foul, you can't have that. Yeah. But if it's up to the coach, am I going to spend this challenge now because my quarterback, we think, took a shot to the head? 
you can only do it one time in a game. Why they wouldn't do it to make it a better game, make it a safer game, is a little bit beyond me. All right, before we move to talk basketball, John's been shooting hoops outside, but I still see a lot of <laughs> air balls out there. Uh, John, explain to everybody about Fans Forum, how they can subscribe, and what we promise to give them if they join our team. Okay, so yeah, you can get involved in Fans Forum. I see a lot of people on the board now. SG Sports Talk Channel, Emmanuel Nahara, um, and there's who else is on the board? There's a few others up here. Raymond Val- Valdez is on the board. So we want to get you involved. Type in your comments and questions in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll get to you at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. And yeah, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube. Click on that bell. You get all the updates whenever we drop new episodes, new video clips throughout the week. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a thumbs up. And because we like each other, give us a five-star rating because we think what we're doing is pretty damn good. And by the way, check my website. It is all written. If you like sports, you'll be the second smartest guy on this podcast aside from me. Just go to <laughs> LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Let's talk hoops. Hoops. I mean, the Spurs, they're back in the news. They got the number one pick. Oh, just great. I mean, this is amazing. San Antonio wins the NBA lottery. His name is Victor Wembanyama. Seven foot three center from France. Johnny's 18 years of age, has a wingspan of seven five. Well, 18 year old playing in the Euro League, average 14 points, nine rebounds per game, playing against men. The best that Europe has to offer, the guy dominated. He goes to San Antonio. And how, how unique is this? Uh, Greg Popovich has built his reputation on coaching Euros. I mean, you look at where they've come from in the past. I mean, Manu Ginobili and all the great players, they were the first NBA franchise that went there and started bringing these guys back here. Mm -hmm. Tony Parker from France, Mm -hmm. etc. And how unique is this? Uh, Popovich and the Spurs, history has repeated itself. Who were the number one picks that they got before vis-a-vis the lottery? Can you say David Robinson? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Can you say Tim Duncan? Can you say Kawhi Leonard? All during the Popovich era, he's a great coach in terms of relating to young players from lots of different places. They sold 2,100 new season ticket packages in the first four hours after the lottery, after they won the lottery and they get Wambanyama. Uh, I will tell you, it's, it's a very good draft. It's a very deep draft. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens with, with Charlotte, which has the second pick, and then what happens from that point down. Um, you know, there's, there's free agency. It's out there, and we'll be talking more about that as we march through the summer towards the start of NBA free agency in July. But I mean, San Antonio, which is a great basketball market, it's the only show in town outside of the tourist in the Alamo. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is great. I mean, and it, they've reinvented themselves again with another great European player. Yeah, I like it when teams like it's like the Padres here in San Diego when you're the lone big time sports pro team like San Antonio is I mean those fans it's all they've got you know so it's it's great to see when they are rewarded um and you know that whole area of you know central Texas I mean San Antonio is not too far from Austin that whole place is just booming uh so good on those guys but I've heard a lot of great things about this young man out of Europe that everyone is really salivating that he could be the real deal yeah, I think he's mature beyond his years. I mean, to think of somebody who's played at age 17 and 18 in the Euro Pro League, mm-hmm. that's that's so impressive. And, you know, Texas is, is a hot spot for basketball. you got the Dallas Mavericks 
you know, and look at the players they've brought on on board from from Europe. Luka Doncic, mm. uh, and you got the Houston Rockets, who used to be great. They were brokenhearted because they they went from having a shot at number one and dipped all the way down to four or five. They uh. kind of fell. And Detroit, which has been miserable, but has been building, building, building. They had a chance to get number one, which might have been the the. the cherry on top of the cupcake it didn't happen for them and they they fell down four or five slots two in the lottery but great for san antonio and it goes to a coach who just is clued in about europe and players and culture and all that so i i think that's that's a cool story for san antonio yeah popovich always has something to say about what's going on in society you know and he's a pretty savvy guy he's he, he picks his words picks his battles pretty carefully but i think he gets just huge respect throughout the league on we go. Next topic. This is not a good story we're going to cover here. Yeah, I know. I saw this headline. And I was like, oh, man, not again. Again. Uh, and I'll tell you, there are a lot of people furious at this guy, John Morant. Uh, he has been suspended a second time. Showed up on Instagram, on video, with a gun. This came weeks and weeks, about nine weeks after he'd been suspended leading into the playoffs. For eight games, it cost him $3 million for a gun incident. It's the seventh incident involving him and a gun over the last couple of years. He's never been arrested. He's never been charged with a crime. But there's just been a lot of stuff about his posse and who he runs with and who he hangs with. When he got suspended by Alvin uh, Adam Silver, the commissioner, the first time, he met privately with Silver. And Silver laid down the guidelines your reinstatement is based on this, that is counseling, and that is to remove yourself from your inner circle, to stop making bad decisions, to remove guns and firearms from your gated community estate. And instead, he shows up this past week with another video, with another gun. And then the complicated all, on Wednesday, he went on social media, and he's writing all these comments to family members and friends, and they says, I'm leaving. Bye. There was concern. There were mm. calls to the police about, is this player having a mental health issue at his home? Oh, no. So they went to the home, the gates, and they met with him and said he seemed okay, said he was okay, said people misinterpreted it all, um, and then they left. Uh, at this point, he's got a huge problem with the commissioner. He's got a huge problem with his franchise. Memphis Grizzlies may be about to walk away from him. They may put him on the trading block to get him out of there. He's lost all of his corporate sponsors, including his shoe company contract. They've canceled all the orders for Jaw 2. It was, that was the new brand of shoe that was out. He doesn't get it. Uh, he continues to run with the same people. You know, he... Went through counseling, said, I learned a lot about myself, introspection, I need to make better decisions. And then we sit here in the middle of May and look at that decision that he made. You know, and I said a long time ago on, on our podcast that the fear that I have is these guys run the streets with guns and think they're beyond everybody else. And somebody else will pull a gun and put a shot into them and we'll find them in an alley. The message has obviously not sunk into John Morant, and he is such a great player. But it looks like there's a real problem there. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it seems that on one level you can say 
bad influence, running with the wrong crowd, maybe tough upbringing. But this seems to be a much deeper issue. Like like you said, maybe it's mental health. If he said, you know, I'm what did he say? I'm done. I'm out. I'm by I'm by. You know, I mean, that's a that's a cry for help. And and when you have that kind of a mental stress and you've got guns side by side, there's a lot of bad outcomes that can happen as a result of that. So this young man needs some help. And I think it's it's gone beyond just getting a good mentor. It's now really, I think, maybe a health issue. It's interesting. Charles Barkley just ripped the hell out of him a couple of weeks ago on, on one of the postgame NBA playoff telecast. And Barkley went after the media at the same time. He said the media should not be writing columns that there's nothing wrong here. The guy never got charged. It's a deeper problem than that. And then Barkley lectured Moran on network TV. Flat out bleeping embarrassed him. You're making all this money. You have a responsibility to the people who gave you all this money. You're making all this money based on your talent, and you have all these followers. You have a responsibility to those kids that are watching you and the families that buy tickets to support you. <laughs> Don't tell me any explanation about your posse, your friends. Uh, what he really needs is he needs, I think, a great NBA player to become his confidant. Yeah, he needs something. To guide him. And I don't know whether that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's retired and has interacted with great players and is a man of enormous credibility. Mm -hmm. Whether it's Shaq, I don't know that it would be Barkley, but there's got to be somebody out there that can do an intervention with this young man. Because obviously what he went through and what the commissioner told him and how he responded... Nothing sank in because we're revisiting this topic on the table again. It's funny that Barkley was lecturing him about his responsibility to children when he was the guy that said, I'm not a role model. Right. I mean, but Barkley, you know, he just likes to push buttons and he's he's loaded. He's making a ton of money because of his controversial opinion. I, I think you have to do a little bit of homework on John Morant and find out who his role models were when he was growing up, who were the basketball stars that he looked up to. And maybe there's a way that, you know, Adam Silver and some of the other head honchos can get those guys to to connect. Because if he has this much trouble right now, he might not listen to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like, who is this old guy? But he might respect someone else. And we just need to find out who that is. Where is the NBA Players Association? Yeah, that's a good resource there, too. You walk in the door... With the right people. And I don't know, maybe the right people. Sean Elliott, great NBA player from out here. David Robinson, great NBA player. There's got to be somebody that they can lasso in to put on the same track with this kid and guide this kid. Because I don't want to have to come back here on one of our Thursday podcasts and say, that guy was shot and we found him in an alley. Mm. And I'll tell you, in our society today, that could happen. Yeah, it really could. It could. Okay, on we go. We get a great sports weekend ahead of us, John. It's called Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> yeah, Indy 500, man. I remember as a little kid, I just loved the Indy 500. I always looked forward to it. And I mean, what's who's the hot drivers this year, Lee? There's about seven of them. Uh, I guess the burning question, that, that's a great quote you put up there. How fast is too fast? The pole position is 234.2 miles an hour. 234. Holy crap. It's a four-lap average. Alex Palou uh, got the pole. Bright young driver. But 30 of the 33 starters ran 230 miles an hour or better 
I mean, oh the God. speed, the <laughs> speed is unbelievable. Now, in traffic, they won't turn those kind of speeds. And you get a lot of turbulence and a lot of dirty air, and you get a lot of danger. Uh, Alex Palou's going to start. There's a side story to this kid that's really strange. Uh, the, 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 the front row starters are Alex Palou uh, from... Arrow McClendon, or from Chip Ganassi Racing, uh, Felix Rosenquist, and Renus VK. VK's from the Netherlands. Tremendous driver, but he always crashes. Rosenquist has just kind of come out of nowhere. The side storyline is Alex Palou tried to get out of his contract with Chip Ganassi Racing last year in the offseason, and it was bitter. And they refused to release him from the contract. You owe us a year. He was trying to go to Aero McLaren, brand new team mm. that's pushed to the front. McLaren's driver is Rosenquist. They're going to start on the front line, on the front row. The report is that after this IndyCar season, Palou is going to leave Ganassi and he's going to take Rosenquist's ride. It's ah. really strange uh, what's happened there. But I'll tell you, this is a global series. There are so many great international drivers that are out there. In addition to those front row guys, the guy from Sweden who won it last year, Marcus Erickson, will start up front towards the package. The Mexican Pato Award, who's had two really great years and has run up front an awful lot, he's going to be in the mix. The legendary New Zealander, Scott Dixon, is the, the greatest winner right now of all the modern-day drivers. He's the one that has the most victories now of all the active drivers. Uh, he's got to be there. Uh, the most Unique one to me is a guy that washed out in Formula One with Team Haas, the USA team that went to F1, and they tried for three years and it didn't work. And they released him his contract, Roman Grosjean. He's here, and he has run up front during all the IndyCar races leading in to the Indy 500. And if he, if he doesn't break or if he doesn't crash, I think he's got to get some recognition. But these guys are flying, and this, this whole unique thing with Palou and Rosenquist and one guy's going to take the other guy's job when the season's over. Just, it's fascinating theater. Well, you know, it's going to be a big party in Indianapolis. Because I know they, this is like a Super Bowl for that city. And they, they, they party for three or four days straight. I just remember as a kid, it was A.J. Foyt. It was Al Unser. It was Mario Andretti. Um, those are the names that I remember growing up with this sport. Um, it just seems that there's not as many Americans that are doing IndyCar these days. And maybe that's why I feel a little bit disconnected. But I, I just, for me, this has a warm place in my heart because Indy 500 was the pinnacle of auto racing in the 70s because NASCAR was such a regional thing in the Southeast. You know, things have changed now, but I'll be tuning in for sure. Oh, it's it's great. I've had such relationships. I came up as an auto racing fan. I interviewed all those guys. Uh, and, and yeah, you're right. Uh, Al Unser, Bobby Unser, A.J. Foyt. Mario Andretti, the son Michael Andretti. Mm -hmm. uh, I developed a long friendship with Bobby Rahal, who won it oh, nice. out of the clear blue sky. So uh, Tom Sneva, the gas man. There's so <laughs> many personalities. Yeah. Lone Star, JR, Johnny Rutherford, Danny Spin and Win Sullivan. I mean, the Indy is so unique as a one-time event. So if, if you're not an auto racing fan, you're watching us on live stream, dial it up Sunday. It'll take your breath away. The guts of these guys to run bumper to bumper at in excess of 200 miles an hour. 
and they've done a great job making the race much safer. But if, boy, if airs get under the air gets under those cars. Well, plus, they have the open wheel. I mean, so those wheels can bang in yeah. at 230 miles an hour. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's tragic. I mean, anything can happen on that race course. And it's a wide open race. Palou is a really good driver, fearless. VK is unbelievable, but dangerous out there to himself and to everybody else. Rosenquist and Erickson have grown up and, and really become established stars on the IndyCar circuit. So pay attention to that. Indy 500 Sunday. It's really special. Let's go from one form of racing to the next form of racing. I mean, Lee, we did the podcast on Tuesday. You're back Thursday. I mean, it's incredible how much sports information you have. We went from Indy 500. Now we're talking horse racing. I mean, do you sleep at night or are you tracking all of this data? This is unbelievable. I know what I know and I know everything. I'm sorry. That sounds bad and pompous, but that's who I am. Deal with it, baby. Triple Crown Racing. Uh, we are now two races in to the Triple Crown, and we've had nothing but controversy vis-a-vis the Kentucky Derby and what just happened to the Preakness. And we're a couple weeks out. We'll go to the Belmont Stakes, which is the third. There have been eight horse deaths at Churchill Downs and at Pimlico wrapped in and around of the Triple Crown races. They got a huge problem with track conditions, huge problems with horses breaking down. Bob Baffert lost a horse uh, the morning of the Preakness, and then his horse wound up winning at Pimlico. Uh, the bigger question to me is is just not the investigations that are going on as to why all of a sudden we've had another surge in horses' deaths and have had to euthanize these horses actually on the track. It's terrible. Uh, the big question is they got to do something about the calendar because 20 show up to run the Kentucky Derby. Hardly anybody shows up to run the Preakness. And stragglers show up to run the Belmont Stakes. It's not what it used to be mm-hmm. in terms of, quote, triple crown. Uh, there is a proposal out there. I think they're going to revisit it. And it makes all the sense in the world because this is all about marketing the sport and having the best fields at these three great races on the calendar. They are The proposal is Kentucky Derby runs in May as it always does right at the start. We move the Preakness in Pimlico outside Baltimore, we move it and make it a July 4th event. Hmm. So that gives the horses the rest of May and all of June to rest up, retrain, or get healthy. You move the third race, the Belmont Stakes, which is a a warrior's race. It's a mile and a half. It's grueling. You move that out from where it is, and you move it to Labor Day weekend. So you would then have the rest of July, all of August, for everybody to get healthy and train to go up towards Labor Day weekend. And then you still keep in place November, and obviously the Breeders' Cup Classic, the Mile, the Turf, all those great events, the season-ending championships that would run in November. That, to me, makes enormous amount of sense, because when they broke the gate at Pimlico, they only had seven horses. He had seven horses. How can that be a marquee event with only right. seven? Uh, I, it should be 20 in each of them. So I, if I were king, and since I know everything about everything, <laughs> uh, you're the one that said that, uh, I would I would do that. I would, I would go first weekend of May, Derby, July 4th weekend, super event. Let's run at the Preakness and Pimlico, Labor Day weekend, first weekend of September. Let's run Belmont Stakes. What's not to like about that? I, I like it. And I, I like syncing it up with some of our national holidays. So for a lot of, you know, casual fans, it kind of connects us to it. Um, I do wonder, though, about the sport. I like the idea of spreading it out. But 
these horses, I wonder, do they train horses or breed horses to specialize in one of the three triple crowns since each race is so different? And then I often wonder, are these horses, what kind of, are, are they on the juice? Are they on steroids? Is that kind of causing some trouble here? No, uh, because the drug testing, asked Bob Baffert about his two-year suspension, the drug testing is pretty significant in horse racing. Uh, and they are tested all the time. It's just a wear and tear factor. I mean, when you have the derby, and you have to come back two weeks later and run the Preakness. There's no t- hardly any time for recovery. And if you got an injury, that's an issue. Plus, you got to travel. Exactly. So that that's what I think is, is the critical thing here. The track conditions have become a problem. You know, we had a really bad situation a group of years ago at Santa Anita. We had 28 horses die because they were changing the track conditions and horses were breaking down in the footing. And they've kind of solved that. Del Mar had a, a little bit of that, too. Uh, but, but the scheduling to me is is really a big issue. And I think, again, the sport is all about marketing the sport. And I do believe that this is the best road to go. All right, let's go from there. I saw the ball. It was under my car in the parking lot. You still haven't solved your problems off the tee. No, let's man. talk golf. I mean, I'm slicing. <laughs> I'm all over the place, man. I zigzag on my way to the to the green. But this this battle, that PGA and LIV, they're still going at it? Well, they are to a degree. But, I mean, it's interesting. We've just come through the PGA Championships, John, and Brooks Kepka who defected and went to LIV Saudi Arabia for the money, he's playing really good golf, and he won. He won the PGA Championship in Rochester, New York. So he's come back from injury and has done really well. Uh, A bunch of the other guys making big money have not really dominated in LIV. Uh, The PGA has obviously developed a great superstar in John Rahm. And, you know, Xander Shoffley, the Aztec, is still right there. Um, The TV ratings are so lopsided, it's hideous. Um, the PGA Championship TV ratings has a viewership of 6 million. The LIV in their last tournament, TV rating of 300,000. Mm-hmm. Nobody here in the States, despite the fact that Kepka is there and Mickelson is there and Dustin Johnson is there and all these other guys who defected are there, nobody's paying attention. And how bad is it? We talked in the off-season in the winter that, you know, the LIV needed a TV network. So they bought the time on the CW TV network, which had yeah. never done sports before. And people still aren't watching it. How hideous is this? Their last tournament two weeks ago in Tulsa, they got to Sunday. And the tournament, went, the final round went long because of weather and slow play. And I think it was at, I want to say 4 o'clock. CW Networks broke programming, left the tournament to go to paid infomercials. Ooh, nobody, nobody <laughs> saw the end of the LIV Tulsa tournament. I mean, that's shocking. And LIV was livid. CW apologized and said, we should have never done that. We should have stayed with the golf tournament. Instead... Now, maybe I'd, you'd never admit you watched it, but maybe wifey at the other end of our studios here would admit that she watched it. They went to a paid infomercial while the golfers are on the final three holes about doing your nails. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's like the Heidi game. Remember that? Back yeah. with the Jets back I in the day? I the story. I said, I can't believe this. This is, this is the LIV and what they're trying to present, which has been some really interesting golf, and it's offbeat and it's different. and. But their network 
partner dropped out on the final day of the tournament with three holes to go as guys were chasing each other to the top of the leaderboard to run paid infomercials about fingernail polish. <laughs> Jeez. You, you probably figure it was probably some young guy that was in there that was probably stressing out. <laughs> what do I do? I've got this guy that's paid for a full hour and uh, I got to make a decision and he made the wrong decision. Well, it was the network. It was not a local station. Well, it was yeah, I know, but it was home. probably somebody made the wrong move. And uh, But it just goes back to the whole broader p- uh, point that the LIV just has a wacky television arrangement, you know, and if they could get that straightened out, you know, there's a lot of people that like the LIV format and they think that, you know, it could be attractive for the fans, but it's off the radar as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's strange. I've watched it and, you know, team concept, sorry, it doesn't turn me on. I like to see metal play. I want to see the winners go head to head with the winners and I don't care about Phil Mickelson's team or what Dustin Johnson's team colors are and all this other razzmatazz. Play golf the way golf should be played. They're getting their money. But I'll tell you what, we're in year two. Nobody is watching it on TV. I mean, think about that. Go from six million, that's what the PGA got in the championships this last week, to 300,000 what the LIV got in viewership. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. Okay. We're going to make some sense here with the people on Fans Forum. We got a few people, about 100 of them here, loaded on our live stream. They got statements, questions. Go ahead, John. Pick some of your friends. Tell me what they've got to say. <laughs> okay. This is from SG Sports Talk Channel. Uh, Hacksaw, what are your top five MLB stadiums from best to worst? Well, I would say the obviously Pitts has to be Oakland A's, and that's why they're going to Las Vegas. That's just an awful facility. Uh, you know, there have been so many new ones that have been built. I, I think, and I, I like Petco a great deal, and Petco has has done so much to be a catalyst for the rebirth of the Gaslamp Quarter and the East Village. I think the best sight lines in baseball are PNC Park in Pittsburgh because it is built looking towards the Ohio River, and you see all the bridges and the skyline of Pittsburgh downtown. It is absolutely beautiful. Cincinnati Stadium, where the Reds play, Great American Ballpark, is built right on the river. And it looks through the skyline onto the Ohio River. Beautiful. Camden Yards was one of the first rebuilt parks. And that is still, I've never been there, but it is still a very fashionable place. If you like history, obviously, all things Yankee Stadium, Monument Park, beyond the fences in center field, it's just, it's just really special. Obviously, the history will write Wrigley Field, the Ivy. History will write Fenway Park. You walk through the tunnels in Boston up to the old yard, and the first thing you see is the green grass. It's beautiful. And then you see the green monster. It's It just stands out. It hits you right in the face. So there's a lot of great places. But I would say Oakland and the erector set mess that is Tampa Bay have to be two of the worst stadiums in baseball. But there have been so many new stadiums built and other stadiums retrofitted that are kind of cool. Well, you know, I, I grew up as a Giants fan going to Candlestick Park. You were cold every Thursday. Uh, yeah. We used to get tickets, you know, like if you got good grades at school, you got free tickets. And we go there like in July and August and just freeze to death. It was just ridiculous back then. But, you know, the, the AT&T or it's Oracle Park now in San Francisco is beautiful. <laughs> Another great sightline park. Um, our family, we took a trip back east about 10 years ago. We went to uh, Fenway into Yankee Stadium and we were in the new Yankee Stadium. And it felt kind of sterile. 
you know. But boy, when you were at Fenway Park, I mean, the the energy there was very different than the Yankee Stadium. I mean, it was just so much buzz, so much love, so much partying going on. And then, of course, Sweet Caroline comes out in the eighth inning and all that. I mean, what a what a great environment that is. But I think it's really neat how people have these bucket list things where they visit every every stadium and and check a box. Um, I think that's terrific. Yeah, I think one of the strangest stadiums was is, is in Arizona. Uh, when they opened that, I thought, this is really going to be special, this Dome Stadium. It's called Chase Field now. If I walked in there, first time I went to a game there, it was like a baseball game played in a shopping mall. I agree, yes. There was neon everywhere, stores everywhere, restaurants everywhere. It was like playing baseball in North County Fair, <laughs> yeah. our big our big shopping exactly. center here in Escondido. It was a, to me, it was the strangest feel I ever had. Okay, on we go. Next question. Okay, let's move on down the list, and uh, let's get Emmanuel in here. And uh, Emmanuel Nahara says, I guess the Padres should really invest in developing pitchers and not rely on only offensive. Look at the Dodgers, and their pitching staff is hit by injury, but they have arms in the minor leagues to step up. How about this kid, Bobby Miller? You and I have talked extensively on our podcast about five young pitchers are all at Oklahoma City. And they've had to rush him to the front now just because of so many injuries. Bobby Miller in his Major League debut the other night, 101 miles an hour, five innings, one run allowed. And he's going to stay in the rotation. So he's there. There's another kid, Gavin Stone, that they really like. He's been roughed up a little bit. Again, they've they've kind of forced him to the front of the line. Um, The Padres had pitching. Padres had a lot of good young players. Padres have traded, last I counted, Padres have traded away 41 prospects since A.J. Perlow took over. 41. <laughs> um, you know, and That's I so mean, many. every mega deal he's made has included real blue chippers. Now, if you go back and look at the names that went to Washington at the deadline last year for Juan Soto, oh, yeah. You get dizzy thinking about that. Um, I'll tell you a sidebar story. I talked to somebody in Washington last night. And, and you know, Juan Soto has responded very well during his three-game series to the fans. It's kind of a, a a love thing going on back and forth I with agree. Soto. There was not a lot of bitterness that the guy left. Washington Nationals are about to be sold. And the rumor out there is that whoever comes in to buy this thing is going to be, A, well-heeled financially, mm-hmm. and B, is going to make a run at Juan Soto if Juan Soto goes on the open market as a free agent. And I think that, that rumor is kind of circulated along the oh, beltway. That's interesting. Uh, I think that's why he was received so warmly in Washington rather than, you refused $440 million and you left our franchise and screwed us, and look where we are as a franchise now. I think that's the rationale. As to, as to why there was such a warm feeling that there were rumors around the Beltway that whoever's coming in to buy this thing from the Lerner family, going to go after him. Well, imagine if the Nationals got that truckload of prospects from the from the Padres and got Soto back and got Soto back. They got the whole thing. I mean, I mean, Mackenzie Gore is going to have a great career. C.J. Abrams shows us a lot. And then, you know, I'm trying to remember some of the names of the kids in the minors. Well, there was a, a young slugging outfielder that was part of that equation. Yeah. He's in the minor leagues right now. And there was another uh, hitter that was, uh, you know, really good for average. And I think there was this pitcher, I think his name was Susanna, that mm-hmm. could throw like 100 miles an hour. So, you know, four or five years down the road, watch out for the Nationals. And, oh, my God, if they added Soto, that'd be something. You'd be unbearable. Holy cow. <laughs> 
You'd be, you'd be, would you even show up to do the show if that happened? I don't know, man. I might have to convert. We'll see. On we go. Next question. All right. Let's, uh, this is actually a fun comment here from T.R. Krellin. He goes, from the shores of Lake Erie to SoCal, great to find you again. <laughs> actually, it's from Baja to the Canadian Rockies, but I'll accept you. You know, when I was doing the, uh, I, I did two and a half years of weekends on Sirius XM's home plate channel the baseball channel and i loved it and i i had no idea what i was getting involved in and i didn't understand satellite radio and now obviously i do and we had people from everywhere across canada and across the united states and i started to do the same shtick from maine to maui from the sunshine state to the pacific northwest and then we started the thing with truck drivers because i was doing a late night show coming out of games i do three hours on friday night saturday night and sunday night on the mlb channel and it was really cool and then uh, truck drivers started to call in and then so then i started the shtick uh where are you going what are you hauling truck drivers check in i want to talk to you and they just jammed the thing all hours of the day you know before i am in in grand banks newfoundland and get some guy hauling lumber who's a Yankee fan or a Red Sox fan, and he's calling me and talking to me while he's on the interstate. Uh, it was it was fascinating. So yeah, we developed some stuff to include everybody regardless of where they were. I know. I, I just think it's so great. All these people sort of rediscovering you online, and it's just opened up so many good feelings, you know, because we all loved you back in the day at 690 well, not and Tiny. Everybody loved you. Well, there you. were a few detractors, but overall, it's great to have you online. I think it's just terrific. Yeah. So, hey, everybody's on Fans Forum. We need you to, quote, share the message that Hacksaw is back broadcasting in the studio while John is out in left field with some of his opinions. Okay, move on. Next question. All right, let's get some of these uh, YouTube commenters involved here. And, uh, Here's one from Arizona Joe talking about uh, Coach Prime. He says, Lee, I believe Dion will blow up in Colorado's face. Getting a college football team together is like marshalling a 110-troop army. A turnover of 72 players is ridiculous. Even for the transfer portal NIL era, a squad needs continuity and chemistry. Also would not uh, be vetting the 60-plus replacements would be a Herculean task before fall camp. That's a recipe for big problems that will that will uh, bling will not solve. Well, I I I do trust that that the offense will be tailored to his son Shedrick, who had a great great couple of years at Jackson State. But as I said on our past podcast earlier this week, you can win at Jackson State in the swack in the HBUC era if you've got five or six quality players. But you're in the Pac-12, and you're playing Oregon and Southern Cal and UCLA, and their numbers of great players are huge. And I agree with you, obviously, that it's tough, Joe, to bring that many new pieces in and fit them in in such short order. But the fact that they got the quarterback, they'll build the offense around what Prime's son can do at quarterback – it's going to be hard though, because you got so many new pieces. They got to they got to fit together, and you're playing Oregon and Washington and the Trojans and the Bruins who've been together for years and have continuity. So I think it's it's really going to be hard. I don't think they'll go one and eleven, but I don't think they're going to set the world on fire because they're playing big boy football. They're not playing Jackson State versus Mississippi Valley State. Well, I, I'm anxious to see who he recruits because there's going to be a lot of players that want to play for Dion, and uh, it's going to be must see TV. I mean this this is going to be great, and I think 
Deion Sanders is a special guy. The way that he can fire up his team, he gets them emotional, and he really gets them focused on the important things in life. Um, I think Prime could really be a transformative figure in college football. So I'm I'm a big uh, fan of him. I'm rooting for him. Would you say the same thing if they get beat 49-13 by somebody that's really in grudge mode for what he did to all those kids at CU that he ran off? Yeah, well, I mean, no one wants to see a team lose 49-13, to 13, but and he might get his, his, his uh, hat handed to him on a few of these games. But overall, I think him coming into the Pac-12 is good overall for the sport. Colorado, well, they only won one game. If they win three games, that's a huge improvement. Yeah, I concur. I mean, I thought it was a good hire in terms of making a statement and an impact in creating big-time buzz. Next question. Okay, we've got some Dodger comments here. Uh, this is from Joey Yarbrough. Uh, it says, hey, everyone knows that the Dodgers are going to go all-in for Shohei Otani. You get Walker Bueller back full strength next year, then check the price tag on Julio Urias. Maybe you let him walk, depending on how the kids turn out, Miller and Stone. Well, understand the Dodgers are well below the luxury tax. They did that intentionally this year. I mean, they're renting all these vets. J.D. Martinez has looked like that's a pretty good investment. David Peralta, he's had some good games, etc. Syndergaard has just not shown the flash that he showed uh, with the New York Mets. But these guys are all in short-term contracts, so there will be some turnover. And I agree with you that they will go after Showtime, and it'll be a huge challenge. Now, that being said, Angels are having a pretty good year. Look at the record. Look at what Phil Nevin has done. I mean, they've, they've gotten better in the pitching staff, mm-hmm. the guys that they've rented, the Hunter Renfros and the Brandon Drury's of the world are hitting better. Outside of Rendon getting hurt again, everybody else has stayed healthy. Trout has bounced back. Uh, Shohei has just been phenomenal as a DH and obviously what he's doing on the mound. I mean, enjoy this. We're never probably ever going to see this again from a multi-position player uh, the way Otani is playing right now. But there, there's going to be bidding war. And I, I obviously think Dodgers, Angels, I think the Yankees are going to be part of this mix. I don't know if the Mets are going to be because of all the contracts that they've given out. And, you know, there's a lot of theories that the Padres should be part of it, but I just don't know from a dollar value how much money's left in Peter Seidler's checking account. Well, maybe the new owner of the Nationals. I mean, if he's willing to give Soto more than 440, he might want to give Shohei Otani 600. You never know. But does Showtime want to leave the West Coast? I think that that's a piece of this equation, which is why Dodger Stadium sure makes an awful lot of sense. And they got great heritage with players from the Pacific Rim. I mean, you just go back in the last 20 years at all the great players the Dodgers have signed who have had success, who came from Japan, came from Korea, came from Taiwan. Well, I think Hideo Noma was probably one of the first ones. Exactly. All right, move on. Next question here. Moving on. This is another interesting one about sports talk from Dick Ellis. And he says, there is a difference between the Northeast cities, New York, Philly, Boston, and Southern California. The sports stations back east are much more aggressive and willing to criticize local teams when they think it's appropriate. And so how radio hosts tend to be homers adding to the fans back east are more critical and outspoken when i travel back east on business i always tuned into sports because i love to hear the passion and comments between hosts and callers i rarely hear that on local stations here there are some nice things about socal people being laid back but lively sports shows is not one of them this is not a shot at you hacksaw but i believe it applies to the majority of sports shows in southern california 
Well, you're right, uh, Dick. There's not a lot of crackpots as talk show hosts on the Eastern <laughs> Seaboard. Uh, I enjoy it. When I go back there, I, I listen to WFAN in New York. I listen to IP in Philadelphia. I listen to WEEI uh, in Boston I was, when I was up in Maine last week on vacation. Uh, so I, they're different. I, I think the most unique things about the marketplaces is Southern California is a melting pot. Everybody came here from somewhere else, you mm-hmm. know whether you got deported from the Bay Area or I, I used to be in Cleveland or Phoenix, a lot of people come from other places, and they still have emotional attachments to the Cubs or the Red Sox or Tigers or whomever. Uh, back there, if you're still there, you're a Cubs fan because your dad was a Cubs fan because his grandpa was a Cubs right. fan. It goes back decades upon decades. So mm-hmm. there's a different mentality and culture because – that's the team we grew up with. Back here, you can become a Dodger fan, but you still might have an emotional attachment. You might be a White Sox fan from Comiskey Park. Uh, but these people here have come, for the most part, from other places. Uh, and in terms of, of sports talk radio, it's just it's just a different era now because there's so much out there. You know, I go back when we did the history of sports talk radio, I think the, the one defining thing that I said separated us – 690 from them, whatever's on the radio now in San Diego at, at the fan or at 760 or whatever's on and up in Los Angeles. The one defining thing is we were one of the first to do it. And we did it and we grabbed you by the shirt collar and we dragged you into the radio every day <laughs> at four o'clock to listen to the best 15 minutes in radio because right. there was nobody else on. And now there's lots of stations. A lot of people try to do it. And a lot of people doing absurd things. There's, quote, a lot of noise out there. But FAN, Mike and the Mad Dog, and IP, uh, and EEI in Boston, and Extra Six Night, we were the first ones. We had the markets to ourselves, and this is who we were. It's, it is interesting. When I travel, I do the same thing. I'll listen to other sports talk shows. But the other thing I notice that's different is the play-by-play guys, where in a lot of other of the big cities, their play-by-play guys are kind of flat line. You know, they're traditional and conservative. Where here in, in San Diego, I mean, we've got Orsillo and Mark Grant, and they're having a party up there in the booth. I mean, it's a very different vibe there as well. So is it cultural? I think it is. I think to your point, everyone in SoCal is from somewhere else, and they've got a connection. And boy, if you're like a Philly fan, I mean, yet you live and eat and breathe Philly sports. It's like a religion, right? They boo a lot (laughs) all the time. All right, let's move on. A couple more here before we wrap up our Thursday podcast. Okay, we've got a Lakers comment here. This is from uh, Instagram, Don Williams. He says, hey, real talk. If the Lakers try to sign Kyrie Irving, that will be a mistake. He makes teams worse. All you need to do is look at his resume. Failed in Dallas. Failed badly in Brooklyn. They blew everybody out. Failed in Boston prior to that. He wanted out of Cleveland, could not play and live with King James. What makes you think, based on his history, that he would work in L.A. with the Lakers? Secondly, Lakers have no cap space. Lakers have no draft picks. And Dallas wants to keep Kyrie, and they think... Kyrie and Luka Doncic can make it come together, though the record between them when they played together in Dallas down the stretch after the trade deadline deal, they're supposed to make the season work, went 5-12. and 12. Great talent, great deal of problems down road. You know, you'll know he'll score, you know he will distribute the ball, and you also know based on past track record, check off all those boxes where he's been, 
there's going to be problems. Why would you do this? Yeah, I agree. You can't go for Kyrie, but I think the Lakers... They're they're back against the wall. They're in a corner. I mean, there's not much they can really do. I mean, what's LeBron's contract? I mean, is it a year to year at this point? Or is he have two a, left? Two it left starts at forty seven. He's not going to retire. No, uh, but but you got you got LeBron and you got AD, and now they really believe that they they found something in Austin Reeves, and I think he's a really good young player. Yeah. And they think Rui Hachimura had his moments where he played really well, and he's getting a lot more minutes here than he got in Washington. So that's four. Uh, I I don't keep D'Angelo Russell. I don't know what to make of the rest of the guys on the bench because they're they're just guys. Yeah, they can they'll hit some threes along the way. You know, Lonnie Walker had one good game. Well, how many games the Lakers play this year? So <laughs> I just don't know that the back end is going to make a difference. What I think would be unique, if they could go find a veteran free agent who's never been able to win a ring, has been stagnated somewhere else, lure him here on an affordable contract of maybe 8 to $10 because you're going to get the chance to play with King James and with AD and maybe be the third wheel and you get the chance to get a ring, maybe that's the way they can do it. Because they can't make trades. They have have no assets to trade. There are no draft picks left. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants. Everybody's got fringe players. Why would you want the Lakers' sixth through tenth fringe player on their roster who's never shown any consistency? So that, to me, is the only thing I think they could do. You know, who would that be? I don't know. You know, would it be Draymond Green, um, free agent? Hmm. Um, You know, but somebody like that that can come in and has still got miles left on the odometer that can make a difference. Yeah, I don't know who that is. I mean, some names that was going through my head, the the, the young man that's up in uh, Portland, was it Damian Lillard? Lill- is it Lillard? Or yeah, Lill- Lillard. Lillard. But he, he's got a multi-year contract. He wants to stay up there. Yeah. He's urging them to go be a player and go get some more names around us. Right. So, I mean, yeah, and Portland wants to build around someone. I mean, who do they, they don't really have anyone besides him. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure Rob Polinka is trying to figure out a way to, you know, find the right guy to, to plug in. And I bet you LeBron is in his ear as well, telling him who to go get. Very much so. Uh, I mean, last year was fascinating what they did at the deadline, how the Darvin Ham was able to mold it and get it deep. I mean, you know, I walked away the other night and I thought, okay, so how do I view Laker basketball? Disaster because they didn't get to the finals, or geez, they did get to the West Finals and they fixed the thing. And they're, you know, they fought a really good team into the fourth quarter every one of those games that we lose into Denver. So I don't know that they're that far away, but I do know this the window is really small (laughs) because of the age factor and the injury factor to the top two stars. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our Thursday podcast. We're here every Thursday. We do a bonus podcast on Monday. We remind you, please share all this data with all your friends. Tell them about our podcast and check my website. If you like sports, you're going to like what I write every day and tell everybody about my website. Share. Don't be afraid to give us a thumbs up. If you can, John needs all the friends he can get out in left (laughs) field. Give us a five-star rating along the way. John, have yourself a great sports weekend. Enjoy the Indy 500. We'll be back come Monday with a lot more topics on the table. Yeah, Indy 500 and Padres at Yankee Stadium. Oh, can't, can't wait for that. Hey, great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to leehacksawhamilton.com.